Our text this morning begins in 2 Samuel chapter 1. We are coming to a passage that is a pivotal turning point in the life of David as we're journeying through his life and through his psalms. This passage is a turning point from where David has been living on the run as a fugitive to now where he is going to start his pathway to the throne and learn what it means to live as a worshiper of God, live, as de- live dependent upon God as a leader of God's people. The passage here where we see the death of Saul, who has been the king of Israel, a leader who rejected the Lord whom God rejected, and who is now dying and has died in this passage. If you recall where we last left Saul, he was up seeking a witch uh, to call up a spirit from the dead to figure out what he should do. If you remember, the the Philistines had gone up north and gathered for battle, and Saul took the Israelites, and they gathered for battle there as well. Saul wanted to find out what happened. He engaged with this necromancer, called back Samuel. Samuel said, not only are you going to lose tomorrow, and yes, the same thing has happened that I told you before, is that God has rejected you and rejected your family from the kingdom, but tomorrow you and your sons are going to die. And they walked out into the night. We pick up at the battle that begins the next morning. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and they fell slain at Mount Gilboa, which is in Israel. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword. And thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised Philistines come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. It's the next day. When the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor. And they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Some valiant soldiers in Israel then came in the night and recovered Saul's body. The news was given to David, and then David responds this way in 2 Samuel chapter 2, which is our focus this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 1. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Joshua. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Those are cities in in the Philistine territory the enemies of God who just won the battle. Tell it not in the Philistine territory, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, no fields of offering, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. He's referencing that shields were covered in oil before battle to keep them limber and also to be a little bit more slippery in battle. And he is calling for Gilboa, this place in Israel, to be set aside as a national disgrace. Because this is the place where Saul and Jonathan were slain. 
David continues his lament. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. The sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Pray with me. Father, we do ask for you to send your spirit to open our hearts this morning to understand your word, Lord, that we might be and become the fullness of who you have made us to be as individuals and as a community that bears your name. Lord, would you do that work in us here today, we pray. Amen. There is a book called The Diary of Andrew Bonar. Andrew Bonar was a believer several centuries past. He was the brother of the famous hymn writer Horatius Bonar. And at one series of entries in his diary, he records his grief over the loss of his wife, Isabella, who had been married to for 17 years. And there are multiple entries where he articulates his grief and where he articulates his loss. But what most people find surprising, or one thing they find surprising about his diary, is that every year on the anniversary of her death, Andrew Bonar wrote a reflection again upon the loss of his wife and upon the loss of the woman that she was. That Andrew seemed to know something that I think people who are grieving know intuitively, that grief is not something, is not just a sad event, but there is a sadness that abides. It is not just something that interrupts you for a moment, but is something that stays and lingers. Now let me say as a disclaimer as we begin, I am going to venture to guess that this sermon this morning is probably not what you were expecting when you came to church today. Um, it's probably not what you were expecting. I would venture to guess that probably for most of us, it is probably something that you have not thought a whole lot about. And I would argue that it is also, therefore, probably something that is missing from your faith and missing from your walk with the Lord, which is why we're turning attention, our attention to it this morning. Believe in this passage of Scripture as we look at David's lament over the loss of Saul and Jonathan. That this passage calls us to learn from it, and it certainly does, but to, to, to learn as the people of God that we would learn to lament. And after understanding that, we're going to look at some specific things about lament that we learn from this passage. But this passage is here so that we would learn to lament. Look what David, how it begins. It says, David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and his son Jonathan, and he said that it should be taught to the people of Judah, that they should know it, that they should memorize it, that they should embody this lament that he is writing. David wanted his people and the people of Israel to learn how to lament. Now, this isn't a term or a concept we use very much. So what did David do? Is David wrote out a reflective expression of grief. 
One definition is this. A lament is a formal expression of grief or distress, one that can be written, learned, read, practiced, and repeated. And a lament is different than the informal emotional outburst of grief that people have often in the moment of grief or the crisis of grief. No, a a lament is highly emotional, but it is an expression of thoughtful grief. Indeed, we might say it is an expression of thought-filled grief. It is no less sorrowful, but it deliberately engages the mind with the emotions. It combines intense emotions and and reflective thought so that one might experience an accurate and a full picture and a full experience of grief. We need to learn to lament, I believe, because God wants us to. More specifically, God wants us to lament. You know, there are huge portions of Scripture that I dare to say that probably most of us regularly pass over when we get to them. Indeed, when you look at the Psalms, there are more Psalms of lament than any other type of Psalm. And there actually is a book in the Bible, and the name of the book of the Bible is Lamentations. An entire book devoted to lamenting. Does this not at least begin to indicate that God expects his people to lament? Does it not at least begin to indicate that God wants us to lament, if not God outright, outrightly commanding us to lament? I think David understood this. I think he understood the need for the community to lament over Saul and Jonathan, and for the people of God today even still to do so. And for the community as a whole to engage in the practice of lamenting and to do so repeatedly. This is an idea that is, I think, so far from our American culture. Um, you know, I think that, you know, we have this perspective that the role of church is, you know, we come to a worship service, we go to church, and, and it's your, it's your, it's your pick-me-up for the week. Well, I hope not to do that today. This is going to be so depressing. No. <laughs> Um, but there's this perception that, that we go to church because it's, it's our pick-me-up, it is my shot of happiness, it's my shot of motivation so that I can go out and, and try to maintain you know, a positive emotional state until I return back next week. And there certainly should be encouragement in, in the Lord. And so all that to say is that when it comes to this idea of lamenting, and huge portions of Scripture about lamenting, they're like, yeah, yeah, not, not me. I'm going I'm to go on to some other, other passage. And we see Christians in other cultures actually regularly engage in this practice. Indeed, stalwarts of the Christian faith comment on it and talk about the need to learn to do it. For example, John Calvin writes this. He says about the struggle of our lives. Afflicted by disease, we shall both groan and be uneasy and pant after health. Pressed by poverty... We shall be pricked by the arrows of care and sorrow. We shall be smitten by the pain of disgrace, contempt, injustice. At the funerals of our dear ones, we shall weep the tears that are owed to our nature. And our Lord and Master Jesus groaned, and he wept both over his own and over others' misfortunes. And he taught his disciples In the same way that Jesus taught his disciples to lament. Now, why is this a big emphasis in Scripture? I think it's because that somehow meditating upon the corruption of this life, 
meditating upon the fallenness and the brokenness and the loss that we experience in this life causes within us a deep yearning for God's redemption and for God's restoration and for God to be at work in our lives and in this place. I think this principle is, I think you know it intuitively in your own life. I mean, what is it that, for many of us, what is it that motivates us to pray? What is it that motivates us to beseech the throne of grace for God to intervene? For many of us, what happens is that with life is going well, we don't pray. We kind of walk away from the Lord. We say, God, I'm good right now. But it's when we come confronted with sorrow or the sorrow of a loved one that we are motivated at those points to seek God, to enter into the sorrow, to enter into the brokenness of this world, to enter into the laments of this life and to seek God to intervene and to seek God to act. We know that. But Scripture calls us to do it not just in response to the circumstances that we're in, but actually part of a discipline of a, of a follower of the Lord to actually consciously spend time lamenting so that we would grow in our yearning for God and yearning for His restoration. Quite frankly, this is something that I am really, really bad at. I think it's something that most Christians are really bad at. But for me, you know, I grew up in it from a heritage, Scandinavian heritage, that had one emotion. And that emotion was, mm, mm, right? So, <laughs> exactly, you feel me? He's so excited over here, right? He just said, mm. And so what happens is that if someone, if someone is mad, it comes out like this, mm. And if someone is like overwhelmingly happy, it comes out like this, mm. Okay? So a couple years ago, we gave some family members this book, Scandinavian Humor and Other Myths, right? <laughs> We gave them this book, and their response was, I don't understand why you gave this to me. <laughs> right? Something that we're really, really bad at. Um, and that's just from my, my own heritage. I, I think the reason, other reasons why we're bad at this is that, um, you know, lamenting, it can feel like complaining. For, the, for others, of, lamenting makes us feel weak because we're expose, expressing a pain or expressing a vulnerability. For some of us, lamenting feels, you know, that it is, we feel that it's wrong for us to express pain or sorrow to God or express that to other people. And those of us who are a little bit more sanctified, a little bit more around the church will say, well, you know, no, no, it's okay. You know, this is good. It needs to happen. If someone's in pain, we're glad for them to do it. We would encourage them to do it. We would comfort them to do it. But I'll never do it, right? I mean, that's fine for other people. But, I, but I, I'm never going to do it. I just don't like the discomfort of it. And believe me, I don't like the discomfort of it. And so what happens is we say, you know what, I, I'm just not going to do that. I'm not, I'm not going to engage in that. But I believe the laments that we see in Scripture assumes that grief and sorrow is deep and is ongoing. I think our own experience testifies to that as well in our life. And it calls us to lament to God, to bring our cares and concern to God, not just to read the psalms of praise and wisdom and trust that we turn into worship psalms while we skip over the psalms of lament. You know, in fact, as I was working on this, I, I resisted preaching on this passage. And I resisted even preaching on this topic because I was like, nobody wants, nobody's going to want to hear about this. I mean, people are like, this is going to be the most boring thing ever for people to listen to. Why on earth are people going to want to listen to this? And the answer why we need to listen to us is because God put it in his word 
He gives us this as part of the word of God because we need to hear these laments and we need to learn from these laments. And we, as the people of God and as individual followers of the Lord, need to learn how to lament. After all, as Ralph Davis says, why should God's people be shoddy in their sorrow? I mean, grief does not miraculously go away. Hurt and loss are not quickly healed. And many of us know the deep reality that the more that you love, the more you sorrow. And that sorrow and grief is the hardest where love is the deepest. And the word of God in the laments of scripture assume that it is going to be ongoing. I think the principle that it shows us here is that along with emotional grief, what these laments teach us is that along with emotional grief, should there not also be, within our journey, within our life, thought-filled grief? Should there not be thought-filled expressions of sorrow and thought-filled laments to the Lord of situations and of brokenness in our lives and the lives of other people? For those of you that are going through the relational wisdom, the RW360 study, this is a perfect example from Scripture of being self-aware and self-engaging, and also being God-aware and God-engaging with our our struggles. So what does it mean? I think it's to do, what does it mean to grow and lament, to learn how to lament? I think part of it is to do what David did. David lamented with this lamentation. David wrote out his grief in a thoughtful and emotional lament. And I think it's it's good for us to do that as well. Maybe for a situation that's in your own life, to write it out and to offer it to God repeatedly, to repeatedly remind yourself of your need for him and of his grace. Now, to help on that path, um, in our community group guides this week in the prayer section, I actually included a a template for how to construct a lament. Um, If you're not in a community group or your community group's going through the RW360 study, If you go to our website and the sermon links where you can listen to the sermons, connected with the sermon link on our website is there is the file that you can download, which will have that little template in it so that that's something that you can can use in your own spiritual journey. But again, the point is this. Why should God's people be shoddy in their sorrow? After all, we, of all people, have reason to sorrow, do we not? We have, of all people, have reason to sorrow. No, we do not grieve as those without hope. But we do grieve without denial. We grieve without surprise. We grieve without excuses. And we grieve without despair. Because we know that this world is not the way that it is supposed to be. We know that sin and suffering is an intruder into God's creation. We know that God created the world for us to be originally created, to be in relationship with God, in harmony with God, in harmony with one another, in harmony with the whole created order. And we know that because mankind turned away from the Lord, that sin and brokenness and suffering entered in, and that the whole creation is cursed, we know that death is an intruder into God's good creation, and that suffering is unnatural, that it is not supposed to be there and not the way that it is supposed to be. We, who are the people of God, who identify ourselves as the people of God, we know this. 
And so we know that, that there is real suffering that is present in this life, and we can grieve that without denial and without some sort of excuse. You know, this is just the way that life goes on. You just got to grin and bear it. Life's awful. Things are hard. This is just the process of natural selection. You know, you just got to tough it up and go on through. The strong will survive. No, we say no. This isn't just something to absorb. This is something to lament over the brokenness of God's creation and his created order. Indeed, Romans chapter 8 gives a New Testament expression of this, where Romans 8 talks about how we, how we groan, how we groan inwardly in the midst of the sufferings of this life, and we groan inwardly awaiting for the fullness of God's restoration and redemption to come. And it's not only we who groan, where Romans 8 says, that the whole created order groans. The whole created order laments the brokenness of creation. And actually, Romans 8 continues. And it is not only we ourselves, but the whole created order, and the Holy Spirit of God himself groans with us in our suffering. As we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies, the adoption of sons, the fullness of Christ's resurrection that will come through Jesus Christ. How we groan, lament the brokenness of this world, the loss of this world, we groan doing so with hope and with eager anticipation that the day is coming when there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away, and God himself will get down off of his throne, and with his, a tissue in his hand, will be wiping the way. There will be no more tears in people's eyes. Because God is coming down and wiping them away and saying, that's suffering, that's, that's no more. That's no more. All the bad things have become untrue. There has been redemption and a fullness of restoration. But until that day comes, what we do as the people of God is that we grieve true and genuine loss. We grieve the brokenness in this world, and we do so as a declaration of our faith in Jesus Christ. We do so as a declaration that Jesus Christ is the one who is coming to restore the brokenness of this world and to heal our deepest laments. We, as the people of God, need to learn how to lament. There's also some particular instruction from this passage that I want to highlight for us as we grow in the practice of lamenting. It is to observe how David laments the loss of Jonathan and also, more surprisingly, how David laments the loss of Saul. Verse 22, he gives this praise for Jonathan and Saul. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. And the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than the lions. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. Do you hear how David is lamenting over the person of Jonathan? David laments over how loyal Jonathan was to David. If you recall from earlier weeks, as we examine this, as we've been going through the life of David, Jonathan's extraordinary faith in God and his extraordinary love and faithfulness and steadfastness to David. 
If you recall, we saw how Jonathan rejected living for me in my kingdom, how living for the, rejected living for the establishment of his throne, how it was Jonathan who stripped himself of his robe, of his war coat, of his armor, how it was Jonathan who renounced his position as the crown prince and transferred the right of succession to David because it was Jonathan, this man of faith, who acknowledged that the kingdom was not his but was God's and God could do whatever he wanted to it. And so David laments this. He laments Jonathan's friendship. He laments Jonathan's love for God. He laments Jonathan's loyalty. I wish I didn't have to say this, but as an aside, and to be clear, it is an utter abuse of this passage to impose upon this text or to read into this text the ideas of homosexuality when it talks about that David saying your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing that of love of women. It's an utter abuse of what's going on and what's being communicated in the simple reading of the text. The point of what David is saying is that for Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel, for him to love David, to show steadfastness to David, for him to love David, David, who would take his inheritance, take his crown, take his throne, take his authority, take his position, for Jonathan to be steadfast to David, to love David, that the, that the love and faithfulness that Jonathan showed to David far surpasses the affection of a wife towards her husband. Far surpasses that of marital faithfulness and love. That's not to diminish that. He is just exalting all that Jonathan sacrificed and gave up and showed in steadfastness. And David's lamenting his loyal, the loss of Jonathan and his loyalty to David. But he also laments Jonathan's character. Because da- Jonathan was not only loyal to David, but he was loyal to his father Saul. And if you recall with me, Saul was not exactly the model of godliness. But Jonathan was loyal to Saul from first to last. I mean, Jonathan had remarkable character. He did not abandon his father. Jonathan did not abandon his family, even when he knew a positive outcome was hopeless. Jonathan was faithful to Saul, despite and honored Saul, despite Saul's sin. Though he did not enter into Saul's sin, he was faithful to Saul and even stayed with him and entered death with Saul. I think what the lament over Jonathan shows us is that it is right for us to grieve the loss of the servants of the Lord. Because what happens is that when there is a loss of the servant of the Lord, there is in that person, there is the truth of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the steadfast faithfulness of God, All of those things have been uniquely embodied and expressed in that person. Have been uniquely demonstrated in the life of that person as it was in Jonathan. And when that person dies, that unique expression of God's love, grace, and steadfast love is no more. And so the response of faith is to honor them and to lament over the loss. But notice how David not only laments the loss of Jonathan but how he laments the loss of Saul. I mean, how could David even lament over Saul? The text tells us this, Saul and Jonathan, not just Jonathan, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. People loved him and they were lovely people. To ask a very American question, I mean, what did Saul ever do for David? Right? I mean, what did he ever do for David? 
yeah, there was that time when Saul was afraid to lead his people in battle, and David stepped forward and went out and killed this giant, and then Saul made David a commander over the army. There was that time. There was the time that Saul made David um, his son-in-law after he tried to get him killed, and that didn't work, and he would have been humiliated if he didn't get him his wife. So there was that time that he made him commander, and he made him his son-in-law. Okay, there were those things that Saul had done for David. But what else did Saul do for David? Well, we know that he overtly tried to murder him on at least 12, inca- 12 occasions. Tried to impale him against the wall. Tried to hunt him down. Tried to slaughter him. It was Saul that turned David into a fugitive and into an exile. It was Saul that made David more welcome amidst the enemies of God than among the people of God. It was Saul who drove David from his family, from his friends, from his home, from his stability. And yes, when you think about all the successes that Saul had, didn't they come at the hand of David? That all of Saul's greatest successes in his life came from David's victories, which David then attributed to Saul? I mean, it's not hard to say that Saul gained much more from David than David gained from Saul. Consider this in some difficult relationships you might have with a parent, with a loved one, and you are petrified about having to give a eulogy at their funeral. Consider Saul and David. And notice how David laments over Saul. Does David lament over Saul's position? which we might expect and say, yes, yes, yes. And he certainly does. Saul was the anointed king of Israel. He was God's vice regent over the people of God. It was Saul's appointed duty to to lead the people in righteousness. That was his position. And he failed miserably at it. But he was worthy of honor and respect because of the position that God had given to him. You know this, right? I mean, regardless of who becomes the next president, you walk into the Oval Office and you say, hello, Mr. or Mrs. President. And you respect, and you show respect, not because of the person, not because of their policies, but because of the position that they have, right? You do that because of the position that God has given to them. Part of the reason why children are called to respect their parents, not whether they're good parents or bad parents, but to respect their parents because of the position that they have. And so David certainly respects Saul and laments over him for the position and the loss of that position. David also laments over some of the positive things that Saul did. Verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. He's saying, yes, Saul was the one that brought an unprecedented level of prosperity to your region. That's something to lament. That's something we've all benefited from. What I find most surprising about David and most instructive is that David laments over Saul's character. He laments over the person of Saul. Notice what he does. He says, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and loved, lovely. In life and death, they were not divided, highlighting their loyalty. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. He commends them. He says, Saul was a strong and valiant warrior. It's kind of surprising. I mean, Saul really was when he actually went out into battle. But a lot of times, Saul didn't go. And that was part of the problem. But when Saul did go, 
He was a strong warrior, and David commends him for it. Not only that, but David commends Saul for his loyalty and his devotion to his family, his loyalty and devotion to Jonathan, for Saul was very devoted to Jonathan. Saul did everything in his power to ensure that the kingdom of God was passed on to Jonathan. That was Saul's problem, wasn't it? I mean, Saul, who would not obey God because he wanted the, the, the throne to pass within his family lineage. Saul, who turned away from the Lord because he wanted to make sure that Jonathan's kingdom was established. That when Jonathan demonstrated his loyalty to David because God's hand was upon David, it was Saul that said to Jonathan, you son of a perverse woman, don't you know that as long as he is alive, you and your kingdom will not be established? And Saul is acting in outright disobedience to God, but doing so in loyalty to his son. And there you have it. Kind of a picture of us, is it not? This glorious mess of things that are positive intertwined with things that are abhorrent. These very, great attrib- these very good attributes of Saul are the things that are his greatest problem. Saul wouldn't submit to God. His selfishness was intertwined with his loyalty. Nonetheless, David commends the loyalty of Saul. He commends his character. He was beloved and lovely. He commends Saul as a person. You know, this is so different than modern psychology. This is so different. We will stay within the church community. This is so different than American Christian counseling, let alone secular counseling. And and here's why. Because it is common practice, and again, I'm about to give a critique of this, and I would say this is that if you don't have any other options, whether a secular counselor or a Christian counselor, I would encourage you to go. But not all Christian counselors are the same. And about what I'm, what I'm about to say is not the practice of every, each and every Christian counselor, depending upon your school of thought, but it is certainly something that every Christian counselor, indeed every counselor in America, will be aware of this practice of which many, if not most, I don't have the basis to say that, if not many, would actually practice and of which everybody has been aware of and instructed in as a therapeutic technique. And it is common practice to say, if you are dealing with relational tension. Bitterness, hatred, having a struggle getting over this. You've lost a loved one, and you've got a lot of anger about that. That what you need to do as part of your healing process is you need to give full vent to your anger, full vent to your bitterness, full vent to your hatred, as if those things are some sort of toxin in your body that need to get expunged from your system. And within the therapeutics techniques, they would go further and say that, yes, It can be understandable, it might even be good for you, that as part of the healing process, that if you need to go cuss that person out, you do that, whether they're alive or dead. And so if you need to go to the gravesite, and if you're angry at your dad for what he did to you, you're angry at your mom for the failure of a mother that she was to you, you go to her tomb, and you cuss her out for everything that she failed you for, because you need to get this out of your system. And many would even go a step further, and say, and if you need to go a step further and cuss God out, you go right ahead. In fact, you may even need to offer God forgiveness for what he has done to you. There are several examples in scriptures of people who expressed their anger at God. And what these counselors would argue and what the the, the technique would say is they would say, well, I'm not really, if you say I'm not really comfortable doing this, They would say, well, what you're doing is that you are just following the biblical pattern of lament. You are just doing what Scripture does and following out biblical laments. And the answer to that is, no, 
you're not. There are multiple characters in the Bible who are angry at God. David's one of them in an episode. Job's another one. Cain is another one. And for any of them, it never went well whenever they did it. It never went well. And yes, we are called to humbly express our heart to God, as we've looked at in previous weeks. Yes, we are called to express our emotions and our sorrows to God, as we have seen before. But you are not called to put yourself in the position of God and judge God as if you know better. It's it's, it's abhorrent. But rather, what we are to do is to bring our heart before the Lord, as we've seen in various psalms, and to express those things to God, and to write laments, and to lament to God over the brokenness of the situation and the loss in our life. And so David, despite how evil and wicked Saul was to him, he laments the person of Saul. And more than that, he honors him. You know, for those of you that have really difficult family relationships and have had awful things done, I would just encourage you to reflect on what David does here to Saul. And you may wonder, how is it possible? How could, I mean, how could David do this in sincerity? How could he genuinely grieve the loss of Saul and genuinely and honestly commend other people and command other people to do so? I think the reason why he can do this is because of what we've seen in previous weeks. It's because David had committed his vengeance to the Lord. David had committed his anger and his hatred and his hurt and his experience of injustice. He had committed that to the Lord. And we see that in Psalms such as Psalm 139, Psalm 109, Psalm 35, just to name a few. And because David had committed his anger and vengeance to the Lord, expressed it to the Lord, and committed it to the Lord, when Saul died, He could genuinely grieve over that loss. He could genuinely honor him for the attributes that were in his life. And I think for for us as well, is that when there is loss and the loss of a person, maybe the loss of a very difficult and wicked person, when we experience loss, regardless of how much we like them or dislike them, at the very least, at the very least, we can grieve the loss of one, who has been made in the image of God and who bears the image of God, at the least. You know, you may be thinking, Walt, you're right, this was not what I was expecting this morning. (laughs) You might even be thinking, you know what, I still, I think about this, I hear it, I really just kind of feel that this has nothing to do with my life. And I think that's the exact reason that I'm preaching, was compelled to preach on this passage this morning is that we're called to be obedient to all of Scripture, not just parts that we think are appropriate for us. That we're called to understand and apply the whole Word of God, even the difficult parts. And I think especially when it comes to lament, we need to understand these large portions of Scripture that so many of us pass over. We need to understand these large portions of Scripture. Not only do we need to understand them, but we need to heed them. And more than need to heed them, we need to practice them so that we would grow in our yearning for Jesus Christ and the redemption that he brings. That yes, as the people of God, we need to learn how to lament. Pray with me. Father, we come before you. And I praise you and thank you for the raw honesty that you call us to. 
Lord, that as your people, of all the peoples on the earth, as your people, Lord, you are called, you call us to face life not in denial, not in despair, not in distress, but with our eyes firmly fixed on you. And our eyes set on your redemption and your salvation, which comes through Jesus Christ. And Lord, you call us to grow in longing for and yearning the fullness of your kingdom to come. And Lord, your word, you have given us tools in your word, in these many passages of scripture, these many laments that we might enter in and reflect upon the sorrow of this life. And so, Lord, that we might yearn for you and in yearning for you, we might live for you so that other people would see us as people who grieve differently, that we do not grieve cynically, we, not, we do not grieve despondingly, but Lord, we grieve with hope because our eyes are firmly fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and our perfecter of our faith, the one who was raised from the dead as the first fruits of the greater redemption that you are working Lord, we ask for your kingdom to come. Lord, we ask that you would create a great yearning within us to lament over the brokenness and to seek you and to strive for you and to know you that we and the peoples of this world might worship you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. The psalmist writes, My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and be glad.